Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hello, I am bringing you the NAOP April program today, this time by Zoom. NAOP is the Association for the Commercial Real Estate Development Industry. The program title today was Facts, Facts Amid COVID-19, What is Actually Happening and Not Happening in Construction, Lending, and Development. I had the privilege of moderating the panel today. The panelists were Guy Martin, president of Martin Harris Construction, Doug Roberts, Nevada and Arizona partner for Panatoni Development, and Kyle Nagy, founder and director for Comcap Advisors. The sponsor this morning was Cox Communication. Thank you to Cox. You know, rather than slice in the conversations like I've been doing in previous episodes after the panel, what I'm going to do is just share the entire conversation from the panel that morning. Uh, the good thing about Zoom technology is that it, it makes it easy to do that. So w- here's what you're going to hear. I open the program. I give a timeline for COVID starting from December 31st, what we saw, how quickly and whatnot up until present day. The critical date for the for context really is March 17th when Governor Sisolak ordered non-essential businesses in Nevada to close. This NAOP panel took place the morning of April 17th, so it was exactly 30 days since the closures. I also share what we've seen between tenants and landlords with MDL Group and our portfolio of close to 12 million square feet of commercial properties that we manage right here in Southern Nevada. After I give those two things, the timeline and the behaviors between tenants and landlords that we've been seeing, Guy Martin uh, then talks about the update for the construction industry, what he has seen, what they have seen in the last 30 days. He's followed by Doug Roberts, who shares what he's seeing from the development lens. And then Kyle Nagy spoke on the state of the union around lending. After the initial remarks from each panelist, we have a bit of a roundtable. And then we close with a Q&A that Mariana Honeycutt from Kimley Horn organized for us. There were so many questions that came from the audience, we couldn't get them all answered. What NAOP is working on right now is getting the panelists to answer those questions. And then if all goes as planned, they'll be posted on the NAOP website in a Q&A and the links will be sent out. No promises, but that's what we're working on. So this morning, there were 547 people registered for the call. Uh, Actually, on the call were about 438 people that participated that morning, which is incredible. A typical NAOP breakfast will have plus or minus around 200 people, usually closer to the 220, 230 range. So to have that many people, uh, it's really telling. And then Doug Roberts said right after this, I quote, it's apparent people are striving for both answers and some camaraderie. I couldn't agree more. Without further ado, listen in, NAOP April 2020 program. We are honored today to hear from a dynamic panel of speakers who are tops in their field and bring a wealth of knowledge and experience with them. I'd like to introduce the moderator for this panel, 
Hi, I'm Ms. Rahi. Hayam is a partner and president of the MDL Group, where he oversees all brokerage activity, including sales and leasing. Hayam is a proud Las Vegas native and has been a valuable member of the NAOP Board of Directors since 2019. Fun fact about Hayam is that he started taking piano lessons and has mastered the classics. The theme songs for Star Wars and the Flintstones, of course. I mean, please. And with that, welcome Hayam. Thank you so much, Julie. We're gonna jump right in. Like Julie mentioned, NAOP Southern Nevada has organized a panel this morning. We're gonna shed some light on what's actually happening in the trenches around development, construction, and lending in our valley. It's my privilege to introduce our panelists, Guy Martin, president of Martin Harris Construction, Doug Roberts, the partner for Nevada and Arizona with Panatoni Development, Kyle Nagy, founder and director of ComCap Advisors. A little bit of housekeeping, uh, the format that we're going to follow this morning will mirror as much as we can the NAOP breakfast that we've come to know and love. Each of the panelists will give a sort of state of the union for their respective industry. We'll have a bit of a panel discussion and then we'll open it up to audience Q&A. For the Q&A, if you locate at the bottom of your Zoom window, there's a Q&A icon, click it, a window should pop up. You can ask your questions in there and Mariana Honeycutt with Kimley Horn will be fielding the questions. So to kick off this morning, I'm going to share a timeline of events of how we got here. I'll give some thoughts about the dynamics that we're seeing between landlords and tenants, and then we'll hear from each of the panelists. So I found it interesting. We're gonna start with December 31st. That was when China first alerted the World Health Organization of a flu-like case in Wuhan. January 5th, World Health Organization came out and actually advised against travel bans, not for, against. January 11th was the first reported death related to COVID. January 13th, the first case that was reported outside of China, it was in Thailand. The first case in the United States in Washington was January 21st. And then February. February 2nd, US announced the travel ban to and from China. By the end of the month, by the 29th, the US had its first reported death related to COVID. March 5th was the first case reported in Nevada. March 11th, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. March 12th, things got serious. The Vegas Golden Knights suspended their season. Two days later on the 14th, the US declared a national emergency. March 17th was when Governor Sisolak ordered all non-essential businesses to close. And here we are 30 days later, the morning of April 17th, and we're gonna talk about what has actually happened in the last 30 days, and hopefully we're gonna hear what isn't happening. And the whole point of this is that, so as a commercial real estate and development community, we have the facts. We know what's going on, if it's good news or it's bad news, and we can all proceed together and make best possible decisions. So just a couple of thoughts, MDL Group manages 11,414,000 square feet. In our portfolio, portfolio, we have 1,743 tenants in 166 properties, and it's pretty evenly comprised of retail, office, and industrial. So like I said, Governor Sisolak was on TV March 17th, 
we got our first call for rent relief on March 19th, two days later. I have to say though, it was more of an inquiry. Tenants were asking, is there anything the landlord could do? They weren't making any kinds of demands yet. But toward the end of the month, the end of March, that's when the floodgate for rent relief conversations started opening. I'm gonna mention that Tuesday of this week, just a couple of days ago, the NAOP board meeting, we had a board Zoom call, and we opened with uh, kind of a roundtable conversation around what, what everyone is seeing. So some of the NAOP developers were sharing sentiments about how, how tenants have been behaving. Here are a few takeaways from that discussion, and then I'm gonna ask Guy to give us the State of the Union for construction. So among NAOP developers, how tenants were behaving, the sentiment was generally speaking, tenants want to do the right thing. It seemed like the range of rents collected in April was around 80%, give or take, 5% depending on whose portfolio it was. One observation was that credit, ironically, did not seem to be a benefit. If you have a credit tenant in your portfolio or credit tenants, it seems like maybe the bigger the company is, the stronger of a position they're taking with form letters, uh, unilaterally saying what they will or won't do as far as rent is concerned. And the final takeaway was, it didn't seem like April rent was as much of a concern as May rent. So we'll see what happens as this progresses. So those are some thoughts, a timeline uh, to, to put some context, some thoughts around tenants and landlords to kick things off. Guy Martin, president of Martin Harris Construction, share with us what's been happening in the construction industry. You bet. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us this morning. Thank you for allowing me to join the panel. Um, to say that the last 30 days has been a roller coaster would probably be the most uh, uh, understatement that I could put together. Um, going back, as Hiram did, to the um, uh, the emergency declaration, that's really when things in the construction industry started to, to shake up a little bit. Uh, April 16th, or April 17th, governor comes out and draws this line in the sand between essential and non-essential businesses, um, lists off specifically what's essential, lists off specifically what is non-essential, and then says goodnight. And uh, for the next 72 hours until uh, April 20th, when, or I'm sorry, March 20th, when he came out with his amendment, where in Article 6, it specifically listed construction as an industry as essential. And that 72 hours that it took to get that document put together and, and made public, um, I would say that every construction leader's, uh, uh, industry leader's phone was just blowing up. Um, we're not on the list. We're on the list. How do we act? How do we react? And the only thing I could uh, tell all my uh, peers in the industry when they would call me is, the door is open for you to act appropriately. Um, you need to get your own data, get your own facts through trusted sources. Um, here at Martin Harris Construction, we take the CDC, um, we take the governor's office, and we take the Southern Nevada Health District as the three sources of data that we go to to determine what our actions and reactions are going to be to each of the various press releases, each of the various events that are going on. Um, in construction, what I've witnessed, I sit on a commission that uh, um, we meet every Wednesday. Um, it's basically the big five contractors here in Southern Nevada and 
um, their respective projects sitting around the table sharing best practices. And the focus on this is two things. Number one, tradesmen and women's safety. Number two is clarity in what the industry needs to continue to function and move forward. Um, both of those tend to be under attack at times. Um, it's, uh, you know, our industry is uh, being hit by the Twitter feeds and the photographs of not having six foot social distancing, trying to figure out how to pick up uh, materials, how to handle our jobs, how to handle things differently. Um, from a practical in the weeds perspective, that's, that's the toughest part. Um, from a macro or big picture level, it's, uh, you know, uh, trying to answer the question of why is construction essential and my industry isn't. Um, that answer is actually pretty simple. Construction for the most part is a non-congregating, uh, non-sustained um, uh, interaction uh, process. We, we, we are masters of our own PPE. I think construction is an industry that actually invented the words PPE or the, the acronym PPE um, down to the very first hard hat that was ever um, manufactured or made was made by a construction worker who didn't like rocks falling on his head while he was high scaling at the, at the Hoover Dam. Um, we've been answering our own questions on how to keep our, works, our workplace safe um, from the very beginning, and this is no different. So um, we continue to move on, we continue to build. We are seeing a lot of our short-term projects be deferred, um, but what we could re refer to as our long gain clients um, the ones that are wanting to have product and inventory at the backside of the COVID-19 outbreak, um, we see those continuing and, and being very uh, uh, aggressively pursued. Um, so uh, still have a pretty robust backlog, very robust uh, estimating schedule. And um, like I said, for the long game clients, it seems to keep moving forward. You know, what I was curious about, you just answered was if you're bidding and if you've bid any new jobs in the last 30 days or expecting to in the next 90. Yeah, we, we certainly are. We are um, as robustly bidding now as we were 30 days prior. Um, the one concern that we're seeing kind of pop up on two fronts is number one, um, subcontractors, small businesses. Uh, Martin Harris Construction has a small business utilization north of 23% across the board in all of our books of business. Um, we are seeing small businesses uh, affected greatly. Um, you know, the, the various plans, and I know we'll get to it, of, of relief are starting to help. Um, but also the, the fear, what fear does to small business manifests itself much faster than it does in large business. And just working with those small business um, partners um, and getting them to make sure that they have strong business plans that help them get through this uh, is, is an absolute imperative. But our estimating schedule is still pretty robust and we're, we're moving along pretty good. It's interesting you're taking the position to help your subcontractors with their business plans. Landlords have also taken a position to help their tenants with getting some relief. The SBA relief uh, conversation with the PPP and the other programs has been webinared in a way to death, uh, appropriately so. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. There is a question. Are you concerned about liquidity? Um, I did see that question pop in there. Um, liquidity is a, is a big thing. It's, it's a very big concern for us. You know, in the construction business, we spend a lot of money before we get money back. Our, our, our cash flow is absolute king. 
Um, we have not seen, and I'm sure when we get to the finance part of it, we'll hear more details, but on our current book of business and our current uh, projects that are being built, we have not seen a constriction in cash flow. Um, we're still seeing bills get paid. We're still seeing um, vendors get paid. We're still seeing um, uh, money flow. Um, as a contractor, we're not so much involved in the art of the deal in the financing piece. So I don't know how banks are reacting with upcoming and future projects. I'm sure we'll hear from Kyle on that in a minute. But the reality of it is um, the ones that had their financing in place that were with high quality and, and, and uh, uh, credit lenders, um, we're, we're seeing those projects continue through. Thank you, Guy. We're going to hear from Doug here. Doug, um, I mentioned earlier in my, in my remarks about tenants and landlords. We've got a lot of tenants. You've got tenants that you deal with. We found that by April 1st, our tenants were tired. They were exhausted. So you've got tenants. Do you know why our tenants were tired on April 1st? Well, I, I think as a general, um, like I guess for me, I've, I've been in the business for 31 years. I obviously had a little career before that, but I've been in the development business 31 years. I've gone through what I consider four pretty major recessions or economic setbacks. And each, each one has their own unique reasons why they occurred. Uh, the two, two of the four, what, what I consider black swan events, um, obviously 9-11, and, and this recent COVID-19 situation or Black Swan events are going to cause economic fallout. The other two, I think, were systematic financial issues that came to a head and then caused uh, system-wide issues across you know, the United States economy and, in fact, the world. Um, I think tenants are, are in, in position right now, and it depends on your business type. For us, we, we usually have production across the country around 20 million square feet. At any one time, that could be occupied, you know, 70, 80% because we have a lot of spec going on. So we developed a system-wide approach to our asset management division of presenting the tenant who's requesting relief with a, basically a form letter to fill out to say, we, we, need to, we want to be able to help you, but you need to fill out some information to make sure we understand your circumstances. Um, obviously, we've had a, a pretty robust, robust economy for the last few years, and uh, landlords are no different than tenants. Sometimes we take cash out. We have retained earnings, that kind of thing that we, that we need to look at to say, are you in a financial position to pay your rent that you just don't want to? Or do you have a financial position where you, you truly need help and we're there to help you? So I think the exhaustion comes from, from, from my perspective, the two things that I see in every, almost every recession, um, uncertainty and trust. And, and even though it's kind of a weird way to put that in perspective, uncertainty comes from not knowing how long something is going to last. Trust comes from not being sure of who's going to pay the bills, how you're going to get the bills paid. Can you trust your tenants? Can you trust your landlords? Can you trust the banks? Um, and I think two of the four, when I bring these up as Black Swan, trust was an issue that came up again and again and again and how I framed things in my mind. Trust in the financial crisis, which was you know back in 08, 09, was clearly the banks didn't trust each other. They didn't, the overnight Lending basically came to a standstill. There's a credit freeze, and Kyle can go into a lot more than I can. But simply put, people didn't trust each other to pay their bills. Uh, the banks were in far, far worse shape than they are now. But now the trust comes into effect because people don't trust that somebody doesn't have the disease. So you go out in public, and you're worried that either somebody has it. You may have it, and you don't know it. You're afraid that if you go somewhere to travel, that you're going to get it and bring it back to your family. 
So trust seems to be a ubiquitous sense of people getting exhausted because they don't trust the situation there and they feel out of, out of sorts. Um, so for me, I, I, the way we've taken this perspective and the way we've looked at, at Panatoni, both my office in Nevada, as well as nationally is, is this is likely a short-term event. Um, can you say anywhere from three to six months where you feel like you're in a, in a position where it's going to be kind of um, uh, trying times for everybody? And especially from a tenant looking for relief from a landlord, we look for that first off is, have you, have you looked at your financial position? And number two, have you applied through the, the CARES Act to make sure you have the financial backstop on that to help uh, your situation? Because obviously different businesses are in different uh, circumstances right now, and that's very important. Um, I do have two hats, which has been a godsend. Uh, I do run the Nevada office in Reno and Las Vegas. Uh, most people know I live in Reno, but um, I build, I'm, I've got inventory here in, in Reno. I have inventory in Las Vegas, but I also run uh, the company's operations for Amazon.com, which has been obviously a, a, a very nice thing to have in this circumstance. They're on a rapid expansion mode as they've been. It's just ramping up. So. From, I have a different perspective, I guess, sometimes on a national basis of what's happening. But um, just a couple things I wanted to kind of point out from the facts and figures, because it's usually something when I go to these panels, I'm, I'm off the cuff. But in this case, I want to make sure that people understand there is a paradigm shift. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm hopeful, uh, especially in different sectors of our economy, that will come back very strong. It just we're going to have to be somewhat faithful to, to what's happening. And, and and this is not empirical, it's more uh, subjective. I'd say about 20% of the deals that we were working on two, three months ago are actually moving forward. 80% of the people, um, uh, I, I always joke with my wife, uh, do nothing is a great option sometimes. And right now, status quo is a good option. If there's somewhere they can stay, they're gonna stay. They're not gonna move. And we all understand that, especially if, you know, it depends on what kind of business you're in. But about 20% of the deals are actually moving, albeit slower. Um, we're doing virtual tours of our buildings. We're setting up uh, actually drone views of our buildings that were completed to send out to people to look at it. FaceTime's popular. You can do you know other ways of, of seeing a building without having to physically travel there. Um, but I thought it interesting, the paradigm shift I'm talking about is e-commerce. And if you're an industrial developer, industrial broker, you're in the industrial business, that's gonna bode well for you. Uh, CB is predicting the next five years, we'll need 75 to 100 million square feet more freezer refrigerator space for obviously for storage food products um three percent of e-commerce is grocery stores you know grocery business walmart last uh, last month did 900 million in grocery sales online that's 21 percent increase over february and it's double what march was in 2019. remarkable paradigm shift you say all right what's happening with e-commerce how's that going to affect the industrial business um it may be not bode well for local retail but nonetheless they, these are the facts e-commerce in 2017 was 9% then it was 10%, 11%, 12.4%, 13.7% prediction in 21. That's around a 14 to 15% increase per annum in e-commerce. So what, what I look to is, how is that gonna affect our business? How, do we, how are we gonna mold our business to, to go after the e-commerce sector? Obviously, um, in my personal opinion, the situation with China and our overseas shipments are gonna drive more onshoring, which is gonna lead for more manufacturing, more storage on, on our uh, own soil. And personally, um, was not pleased to hear about how much drug production was overseas. We need to keep that more onshore. So those kind of things are going to cause paradigm shifts in manufacturing, storage, just in time, which was a great model in business schools in the 80s, is pretty much gone. 
um, just in time worked when it was just in time. Now there is no just in time because the, the, the logistics supply chain is upset. There's no way to get things in, in, um, in from overseas into our ports, from the ports into our, prop, our properties. And that's going to lead to further disruption in how we do things, which I think to the benefit of the United States. Um, it may not benefit overseas uh, countries as much, but frankly, there's a, we have to be somewhat circumspect here and say, what are we going to do to protect our own supply chain, make sure we have what we need to, to uh, live our lives we want to. But there is hope. I'm, I'm not... I'm not totally negative on what's happening um, on an economics front. I'm obviously quite upset about what's happening with not being able to see my folks who are both in their mid-80s. I have to stay outside and hand them stuff if I want to see them. It's a very moral and ethical conundrum we're in right now. Do we start the economy and worry about our health of our country? We have to have a balance of that. So speaking just from the development perspective, at one of the previous NAOP panels, you made a comment that in a way, we need to take a, a little time out. We need a pause to catch our breath. Clearly, you were not talking about from a pandemic. You were talking about the development cycle. This cycle was, was white hot. So from that perspective, in a way, is this pause, is there any silver lining that you see? Yeah, and I, I want to couch or caveat any comments I make to be, understand this is purely an economic comment. It's not a ethical comment about the situation at hand. We have a lot of sick people and a lot of circumstances that uh, we, we, we have to count our blessings if we have family that are still well. But nonetheless, I, I got concerned about the amount of building going on in the market, not just Las Vegas, but across the country. Um, understanding that the vacancy rates in the marketplace between all the major houses, the brokerage houses in town, definitely had, we were in the single, single digits, which is great. Anytime you, you're in five, six, seven percent vacancy, you're in a pretty balanced market, but I could see that we're heading toward more vacancy because I didn't see the absorption of product um, like I would, I would want to see to make sure we have a balanced market. Um, and I was talking to you know a, a friend uh, the other day, Jim Stewart, because he probably wants me to say his name. We we're talking about all right, what do we see from from this? In some ways, we say all right, the recession we were looking for is a normal market cycle has hit. In some ways, that answers that question: when is it going to end? And I think for, for me, I look at this and say, all right, this is a black swan, horrible event. We're going to go down. We're going to come back out again. And maybe that answers that question because of the two of the four recessions that I've been through, again, two were economic, two were black swan. And, and this does answer that question of the recession is going to hit. It's going to be brutal. Um, I predict another three, four months of this kind of thing. And then we'll come back out again. And the paradigm shift is going to help us to kind of put things back in our own soil and recover in a, in a positive way. Thank you for that. Um, I see questions coming in. I want to remind everybody that you can ask questions, locate the Q&A icon at the bottom of your Zoom window, click it, ask questions. Mariana is organizing them based on the panelists. And after remarks from Kyle and a little discussion, we're going to go into Q&A. So speaking of questions, Kyle, you are a money guy. I was hoping you could help me answer a question. Kyle, what do you call a belt made out of $100 bills? Expensive. Close. Actually, not close. A belt made out of $100 bills is a waste of money. Pretty good. It's a good dad joke. That's what I do. Isn't today dad joke day or was that yesterday? I saw that on the internet. I don't know which day it is, but you're the, you're the lending guy. Give us the state of the union on what you're seeing. 
Absolutely. Well, first, thank you, Nat, for allowing me to participate in this. Anytime I could associate with this great organization is an honor, so thank you. My goal is to be as direct and candid as possible. First and foremost, this is unlike the Great Recession. Real estate and the credit markets did not lead us into this mess, and how we come out will be vastly different. I will cover lenders and how they responded to the COVID crisis and what they're doing now. Let's start with banks. These are your short-term construction bridge, consumer, personal lenders. They tend to be one to five years. They tend to require recourse. These are the institutions that are up and down every street here that most of you have borrowed from. Unlike the Great Recession, the FDIC or the Federal Reserve, the governing body for banks, came out immediately, was quick to respond with leniency and flexibility. What this meant for the bank is a couple of things changed. First, there were new accounting laws that were going in effect that required additional due diligence, a little more restrictive. They postponed those. The way in which they define a troubled loan and even how they report to the credit agencies for borrowers and, and just consumer borrowers, the, the mom and pop who has that home loan, has changed. If they were affected by the COVID-19 crisis, they're giving extra time. In short, the banks have been far more flexible and responsive than they were during the Great Recession. Now, the banks were actively lending on commercial real estate up until the point that the government introduced the Paycheck Protection Program. What this did is it gave the banks an opportunity to put a lot of money out fast at a pretty good rate of return. So they moved their focus to the PPP program and put CRE kind of to the side. Well, during this period of time, the banks started to receive default issues, uh, relief requests, how do I deal with this tenant? How do I deal with my home mortgage? So once this PPP program is over, I think the banks are gonna move over to concentrating on their balance sheet, concentrating on their portfolio and working with their existing clients. Fortunately, the banks have showed a greater willingness and flexibility to work with borrowers. 2008, 2012, people were afraid of banks. I think they're trying to help their clients and their borrowers far more than they were before. Now, long-term lenders face different challenges. Now, these are your non-recourse, no personal guarantee, 10-year term, 25-year amortization, or 30-year amortization lenders. These are the preferred lenders for borrowers who built a property, wasn't stabilized, wanted to get out of the guarantee, move on to something with a fixed rate, great rate, take away any personal guarantee or recourse they have. Fortunately for life insurance companies, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners issued regulatory suggestions to the states. Now, life insurance companies are regulated at the state level. They don't have a federal organization that oversees them. But what this did, is it took this trade organization, much like NAOP, and said, states, the life insurance companies are going to have issues. Please be flexible with them. Back up on your regulation. Be careful on how strong you are with certain requirements. And then the life insurance companies took a herd mentality. They basically said that if our association is saying this, and the life insurance companies in Iowa and Nebraska are doing it, then we should be fine. So they were able to back up a little bit. They were able to work with their borrowers and they were able to kind of delay their response, which is great for long-term borrowers with fixed rate debt. It was really, is essentially a cover protection for these lenders. Now life insurance companies are still actively lending in the marketplace. Their 10 year fixed rate loan, somewhere between 3.75 to four and a half, not all of them are active, but many are. The ones that are on the sidelines are considering coming back, but you should expect floor rates. Floor rate means that no matter what the index is, the lender's gonna have a rate of say 4% or 
So even if that index, that 10-year treasury is going up and down, you're going to get a set rate from them. So this is a good, this is a great benefit of having some flexibility from the lender so that individuals, companies, borrowers who have loans that they need to get off their bank line can move it into a non-recourse basis. It's very comforting for them. It sounds like it's just a small group and not everyone does life insurance company loans, but the fact that they're being flexible, allowing debt to be paid off from the bank and put it long-term is a great benefit to the market. Unlike the life insurance companies, CMBS lenders sell their loans in the secondary market and reflect what current credit conditions are. For those that may not be familiar, CMBS stands for Commercial Mortgage Backed Securities. These were typically the higher leverage, call them 70 to 75% loan to value loans. Their 10 year terms, 30 year amortization, get interest only period. These were the, the more aggressive lenders in the marketplace. You build a property, you want to cash out, you could do a refinance and cash out after development, you've owned it for a few years, you want to put some money in your pocket, you would go to CMBS lenders. Problem for them is they are tied to the credit markets. And I mean instantly tied. If it happens on a Thursday, we're hearing about it Friday morning. And once businesses started to draw upon their credit facilities and lines, the overall credit market started to struggle. Without the ability to efficiently sell loans in the secondary market, CMBS lenders could not accurately price new loans. Fortunately, the Federal Reserve drew upon its Great Recession Playbook and reintroduced something called the Term Asset Backed Security Loan Facility. We call it TALF, or in this case, TALF 2.0. TALF will allow the inclusion of legacy CMBS loans. These are loans that lenders closed and they were ready to sell in the secondary market, but couldn't sell them because of the credit crunch. By including them into this TALF fund, the, the CMBS lenders, and a lot of them are banks and investment banks, have the ability to clear off their balance sheet. Essentially, it unlocks the credit markets and provides a mechanism for security and trust and comfort in the secondary market. Imagine prior to the, say 2010, if the government came out and said, hey, lenders who are struggling with balance sheet loans, lenders who are having issues and are taking losses, allow us to take those, guarantee them, allow us to work with you on them. Instantly companies, maybe even like Lehman Brothers, would have been able to offload some of their riskier loans, put them with the government guarantee, and then would have made it through the recession. With TALF 2.0 and other improvements to the credit markets, CMBS lenders are starting to recover. And there are actually whispers of quoting new deals and future securitizations in the market. These are all good things for all of us. Even if we don't borrow on a CMBS side, it tells us that our credit markets are healthier. I am like Doug here. I feel a lot better today than I did three weeks ago. It's nice to see that the government drew upon the successes of the Great Recession, the Federal Reserve, the NAIC, the banks, everybody came in and they responded quickly. Because of that, hopefully the depth of, the, the, the depth of this crisis won't be as long as we hope, or as deep. So you said a lot in there. The, the one question that we're being asked right now, more than any other question, you know, we talked about how almost immediately tenants were asking landlords for relief. Now landlords will be asking their lenders for relief. Are lenders going to give relief? Are they giving relief? I'll take two positions, okay? Let, let me take the hard lender, right? The lender who has provided a loan, who trusts the borrower to pay it back, they don't get paid any more or less if the tenants are paying higher rent. They don't get paid any different if the property is 100% lease or 90% lease. 
So when you have a borrower landlord go to your lender on April 1st and say, I need a mortgage payment, I need deferral, I need interest only. The lender says, okay, you're asking for April and you don't want to make your April payment. Your loan's paid in arrears, right? Your loan for your payment in April is based upon March rent. Most tenants paid March rents because this didn't start happening to the middle of March. So the lender said, you're already holding back your April mortgage, which is based upon March rents, which you have in your pocket. Are you trying to build a cash box? Are you trying to build a reserve to negotiate and fight with me? So the first thing lenders did is they said, make your April payment. If you make your April payment, I will most likely work with you. Now that doesn't mean they're gonna forgive the debt. Doesn't mean that they're gonna satisfy them in every way, but it means that they're open to the idea. So that's the hard approach. Other lenders came out and said, we're all gonna be in trouble together. We think this is a short-term issue and they were proactive and they created programs to address responses. And their list was pretty minor. It was give me a current rent roll, tell me the tenants that are struggling, write me a nice letter asking me specifically for something. Some lenders did that. And we have already handed out some deferments, some interest only periods. Comcap has issued several of these to the lenders we service for. Those proactive, they've helped the borrowers. The borrowers that were difficult out of the box, they may not get a lot of assistance through this. Is there a difference with how life companies are giving relief versus CMBS specifically? There is, yes. And to answer Guy's question, he mentioned something earlier about construction loans continuing. Banks have been pretty wise through this. And I have to give them credit. They forward funded additional interest reserve in some of these construction loans. So if it was going to take longer to lease up or if there was an issue, immediately they were putting more money in the interest reserve. They're also moving loans to interest only. Remember when the FDIC came out and gave them leniency and flexibility, one of the things they did immediately is said, do you have a loan with us? We're just going to give you 90 days of interest only. All you do is have to provide a few items. So the banks have been great. Life insurance companies, portfolio lenders, long-term lenders, they have cover. They're probably going to give you 90 days of interest only if you ask, but it's up to them individually because they manage their own portfolio. CMBS is a mess and it will always be a mess. There's no regulatory body on them. Each servicer and master servicer earns extra fees and income by charging fees for requests. So there's no uniform approach to CMBS. What we were hoping for as an industry was a uniform approach. CMBS, life company, banks, everybody give you 90 days of interest only. Can you imagine underwriting every single loan in a portfolio on a case by case, every year in operating statement, every year to date, every rent roll, every tenant who's having issues, and then trying to figure out how much of the mortgage they can cover based upon their rent coming in. Unfortunately, a universal approach didn't come. Each lender still looking on a case by case. Got it. Thank you. Mariana, what kind of questions do we have coming in? So we'll start up at the top. A couple of questions for Guy. The first one here is, do you expect construction pricing to soften given the labor surplus and expected raw material reduction in demand? One of the things that I would point out is that we're still working. The labor surplus is more hitting the residential markets uh, than it is the commercial markets. Commercial construction is still moving forward. So um, simple answer to that question is no, I don't. I, am, um, I do have some, like I said before, I have some uh, uh, long game clients that are hoping for that. Um, we're motoring through some bids right now and we'll see what happens. Um, in my opinion, one of the biggest things, one of the biggest negatives that could happen in the construction industry specifically is out of fear, we get in a race to the bottom with pricing. 
And what ends up happening is this is a 90 day event, 120 day event. And now I've got myself, if I'm a small business or a subcontractor, or even a GC, I've got myself roped in with uh, cheap work that I took at a very low fee so that I could get over this fear of running out of work. And now what I've caught myself in is I'm in this, this period of time where I have to do the cheap work. And meanwhile, the market's going up and I don't have enough capacity to go up with it. This is, this is one of those things where people really, really need to study their business plans. They really need to not lurch. Fear and worry should have no place in your estimating and pricing decisions right now. Um, you should be wise. You should talk to your banks, talk to your underwriters, talk to people that are on the business of construction, not the building side, and figure out what those markets are gonna do to you and then react and act appropriately. I hope we don't see a race to the bottom. And, and like I said, today, there isn't a large surplus of, of people out there because in the commercial construction world, we are still, still building. Great, thank you, Guy. This next question is for Doug Roberts. How do you think this situation will affect uh, lease rates going forward? And on the development side, how will this affect construction and development costs? Well, I, I think I'd, I'd echo Guy's comments. I think it has to be somewhat of a, subjective objective viewpoint of what the world's going to look like in the next few months and i i would we've had you know rfps that come across our desk and interest in our buildings both in las vegas and in reno and our position has been we're not going to start cutting rates because we're scared um, first of all our capitalization structure is such that we don't need to well, we're very fortunate we have some of the largest companies in the world that invest with us and we have you know quote unquote staying power and low leverage and to, you know, what Kyle was talking about earlier, the banks are in much better position. We have, you know, non-recourse debt that's low leverage. So we're not, we're not going after low rent. We're, we just don't see it. There are going to be some companies who will. And during the Great Recession, we saw a very obvious condition where it was a spiral to nowhere, where one company would have a building, they would lease it low, and then there'd be a remargin call because the bank would say, well, your, your current valuation is, is, is now effective because of your low lease rate. The person next door would have to do the same thing to attract tenants. The person next door would do the same thing, the same thing, and pretty much you'd spiral, spiral out of control. Everybody was doing low rent, and uh, what happened was, you know, valuations went down, margin calls went up to the banks, and nobody won. I think now you have a much stronger uh, industrial base, and I'm, again, I'm not talking about office or retail. It's not my my area of expertise. But on the industrial side, stay strong is what my recommendation is. Um, if you need to get some free rent out. Um, that's probably understandable. Uh, we'd probably do the same thing, but keep their face rates up. Make sure your lease rates are, are perform or, or at least within that range of your underwriting because we're going to come through this in the third, fourth quarter and be fine. Don't, don't be out trying to lease up space unless you absolutely have to. And I think, again, most of the industrial markets across the country are controlled by institutional owners. It's, um, it's for, you know, from a, from a paradigm shift, as I talked about 10, 15 years ago, completely different. Um, landlord scenario now compared to what it used to be. It was, it was very segmented. Now it's probably 10 companies own most of the industrial buildings in the, in the country. Um, on the other side, uh, you know, kind of actually segueing what the guy was talking about as well. Uh, and, and as a developer, unlike a landlord, we have a different, we, we are both. So developer de depends on construction work going on the field to get our fees uh, off projects to keep the lights on. And at this point, all our projects are going, and as Guy mentioned earlier, we have 
inherent social distancing with construction sites. And, uh, you know, thankfully we, we've, we've seen the, the governor recognize that, but even clients like Amazon, have gotten exemptions across the country because they're considered essential business. So those fees are continuing to come in. We're hopeful that COVID situation at different job sites has not gotten out of control. I mean, everybody reads about the few cases at the stadium and, but we've been very, very fortunate and we haven't had cases on our sites and, and we, we hope that's because of distancing, we have increased facilities on site. We're doing quadrating where we, we have different job crews on different parts of the building that, that can't cross over. They have their own you know, own restroom facilities. They have sanitation facilities there so they aren't cross crossing over so we can isolate where an incident may happen. So as long as we're proactive and we're, uh, you know, and Guy makes great points about being self-governing. It's, you know, if you govern yourself, the government won't have to do it for you. And that's been a huge push on the construction industry that we've been a benefit of. And hopefully that will continue. Um, if, if I could add to Doug's point. Um, so, so he was mentioning the lower rent, the remarging, and how that works with bank. This is why some of the comments I made earlier and, and Doug echoed is that what happened during the Great Recession is banks were moving to remargin their loans, right? They wanted to make sure their balance sheet was sound. So they would go out and they would notice that they, they got a lower rent, they would get a financial statement rent roll and say, borrower, your loan no longer satisfies this minimum 75% loan to value or maximum loan to value. You're now at 85, you need to pay down your loan by a million dollars, right? And that borrower may not have had a million dollars. The bank responded quickly. They didn't want to be taken over by the FDIC, so then they foreclosed on the property. Well, that caused a domino effect exactly as Doug explained. When banks, when banks were doing this and the FDIC caught wind, they said, okay, guys, after a while, they said, stop doing that. If they're paying their mortgage, they're fine. You don't need to underwrite. You don't have to re-underwrite. We're not going to come in and do an audit and close on your bank. And as soon as the landlord could sign whatever rent they can get to get income in and pay their mortgage, even if it didn't satisfy their loan covenants, they were able to keep their property. That's why this is a little bit different this time. The bank, the FDIC already came out and said, leniency. We learned our lesson last time. So hopefully when we come out of this, if, and I'm not suggesting lower rents, but if somebody had to take a lower rent, it doesn't mean that they're going to lose their property or they don't satisfy the covenants of their loan. We have a, a couple of questions that are tying to, I guess, the forecast as to what you guys see as coming back to a return to normalcy here. One being, how will the U.S. recovery be impacted by the lag in the global recovery? A number of international financial institutions are saying it will be 12 to 24 recovery period to get back to some new economic normal. What's the panel's opinion on this view? And it kind of ties into a few questions we've been getting back here about uh, kind of the forecast for returning back to normal here. I'll, I'll take a shot only because we have operations in Europe and Canada. Um, so I at least have some insight in that. I, I would say, you know, United States has been kind of a beacon of the, of the economic growth for the last 10 years. I mean, we, I mean, I, I think I've said this on many panels. We technically came out of the recession in 2009. And I would submit that Nevada didn't think they were out of the recession from a subjective standpoint until 13 or 14. So we've been really recovered for maybe six years, maybe seven, if you want to be more aggressive about it. The, other than China, I think most of the world's been kind of stagnant. I don't see like one area of the, of the world that says, hey, we've been going game busters, even in Europe. In Europe, in our European operations, the key to that whole thing was the EU. When the EU borders uh, blended, 
uh, you didn't need 25 distribution centers. You needed five or four or three. You had one in Antwerp, you had one in Munich, I mean, whatever it was, you can cross borders like you're crossing states. That was a huge shift in their way of, of shipping goods around um, Europe. So that, that kind of led to an economic boom for industrial guys because obviously you, you could, you could uh, build bigger DCs and, and, and the whole way of method of trade was different. And China, to me, and, and this is my personal opinion, has been kind of a um, artificial growth model of governmental control that led to a lot of inflationary uh, issues over there. Then the growth went up and then went down the last uh, about a year or so. So I think the United States still is the global model. And I think our growth is going to be more dependent on ourselves more than ever because of what's happened with this pandemic has exposed a lot of weaknesses that are going to come back and, and hopefully help us become more you know, independent and less dependent on outside forces. Um, but I, I don't, I don't, I'm speaking again for industrial retail is a different animal, especially destination retail and things that they're going to have to grapple with. And I have a lot of friends who do retail and they're frankly worried, but, but my, my argument was always, if you have a destination retail location, which is the getting away from the old strip malls, I'm talking about places people want to go and congregate because we're social animals. You'll do fine in the long run because people want to be around people. Uh, there's a reason why we don't like working at home. We've all found that out for the last six weeks or five weeks, whatever it's been, to say, I love my family, I love my house, but at some point I want to be you know, out in the world. So that whole thing of the shift of where people want to be and where they want to work from retail standpoint, that's going to come back because you know, the pandemic will eventually end. But I, I do think the U.S. will recover quicker than 12 to 24 months. I think that's a little bit um, too negative. Thanks, Doug. Uh, we are running out of time here. I know we have a lot of great questions and uh, we'll work with Katrina and, and see if we can get these summarized and out to the group here uh, today. Um, but one last question I'd like to leave you guys all with uh, is what keeps each of you up at night during these times? I'll go first on this one. And so this is a pretty simple answer for me and that's the health and well-being of our associates at Martin Harris. Um, these are some trying times. Our leadership here at the company is pretty young. We've been through a recession. This doesn't feel anything like that. So trying to create this safe and cohesive and fluid kind of environment where we are making sure that we put our associates' needs and well-being first, that's, that's really what we're, what we're focused on. It's, it's pretty amazing to walk the halls around here and, and make sure that we are watching after one another, being kind to each other first. You know, this this whole herd mentality that we have as people and we all want to be in the same room together and we all want to shake hands and hug and everything. And there's actually some pent-up anxiety for some reason around not being able to shake somebody's hand and see them face-to-face -face and everything. And, and you can see that wearing on people. And um, just, you know, reminding folks and, and taking a little extra time in your conversations and, and just checking on people. Um, so for me, it's just, it's just the health and safety of our associates is my number one thing that keeps me up at night. For me, I heard a great term last week, and the word fear really represents future events already recognized. So what keeps me awake is fear. It's fear of the unknown. And to build on the Doug's point, we don't know what this is going to look like when we come out. When we all start going back to work, we really really don't know where the economy is going to be. We're, we're getting first quarter earnings. We're getting unemployment numbers, but we don't know. And the thing that scares most people is fear of the unknown. 
And when we don't know, we start to write our own stories. We start writing our own worst case horror movie stories. This could happen. This could happen. So I'm one who doesn't sleep to start with. Uh, my wife and my family get on me about this all the time. And I, I just have difficulty sleeping. So right now it's just trying to accept that I don't know or, or are unsure what the future brings and just face each day one at a time. Now I could say that, I feel that, but also what's affecting my sleep is six months ago, it was me, my wife and my young son in our nice house and it was quiet. Now my three older daughters from college are back and they don't sleep. They're up in the middle of the night, they're cooking food and playing with the dogs. So now I don't sleep because they're making a racket in my house. So I love them, but it'll be nice when they go back to school and I can get some sleep. I'll, I'll be quick because I know we're running out of time. I, I think what keeps me up at night is the wisdom of our leaders. And I say that both good and bad. I mean, there's a fine line that we're all we're walking as citizens and then the leadership, you know, from both a national and state local, local level, we're counting on them to write, make the right decisions as far as what, what we have to do is uh, on our citizens read to, to take care of business, but also be healthy. And I think some cases where I hear quotes like we're going to let the science lead us, that ignores economics and ignores the social nature of, our, of who we are. So we got to be careful um, in some respects that we understand there's a lot of different factors out there and we have to be um, at least recognizing that the economic health of our country is, is, is very, very important. The safety of our citizens is very, very important. How we get out of that is going to be something in the next few weeks is going to be very, very important. And by the way, I, I think the citizenry, frankly, after three, four more weeks of this stuff, I, I think you're going to see some situations where people are going to say, I'm, I'm done. And that's going to lead to some civil strife. And how we handle that is and the, you know, law enforcement and what we do, um, it's going to be very telling. I'll um, also answer the question and then we will wrap up. Uh, and I, I have some closing remarks as far as um, some end housekeeping. But thinking about when that's a question, what keeps me up at, at night right now? The last time this happened, this being, you know, some like Doug called it a black swan or an economic downturn. Uh, it was the global great recession for me. Um, I had a couple hundred bucks in my bank account, literally. I had credit card debt. I had no kids at the time. I, I, I was about to be married and I had no idea where my next source of revenue was going to come from. In this go around, as I think about this, I'm still working. Our company PPP loan just got funded yesterday. As I'm saying this right now, we have zero plans to lay off any one person from MDL group because of COVID. So it's different for me. I know there's a lot of pain out there. I know there's a lot of anxiety out there. Me personally right now, I'm not feeling as badly as I was last time this happened. So that's my, my final sentiment. And to piggyback off of your sentiments, I want to thank each of you, uh, the panelists, Guy, Kyle, Doug. I know you have a lot going on. So you being with us here this morning and sharing your generous contribution is of tremendous value. There were 427 participants this morning. First of all, that's remarkable. I, I want to remind everybody that this was recorded and it will be made available in just a few days. I want to express from the programs committee and on behalf of the membership, express gratitude for Katrina, Jana, and the alternative management team. Uh, those of us who worked with you behind the scenes know how much you went above and beyond to make the production of this Zoom April breakfast program as good of a quality as what we've come to know for NAOP programs. 
So thank you for going above and beyond. And thank you, Mariana, for fielding the questions. That concludes this part of it. I'm gonna give it back to Julie and she will wrap up for us. Thank you. Thanks, Hiam. I echo your sentiments. Um, this was a terrific program. We appreciate everybody's participation. Um, and we also wanna thank, uh, lastly, the meeting sponsor, Cox Business, and to all of you participating again in our first virtual breakfast meeting. We'll see you on May 21st at our next breakfast meeting, either in person or via the internet. Until then, be safe and be well. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways Podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like this show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.